You know, someone once said that if you want to know how imperfect you are, just get married. I would add to that, have children, and then you'll really know that you are not perfect and you can't be perfect. The other day I was sitting with my son and he was kind enough to tell me all the imperfections that he saw in me as his mother. And I thought, you know what? I can't wait for the day that you get married and have children and they grow up because then we'll have this conversation and I'll say, isn't grace just such a wonderful thing? Isn't that true? Grace is just a wonderful thing. Why? Because none of us is perfect. None of us has met the standard. None of us does what is right all the time. We all need God's grace. And grace, by definition, cannot be earned. There's nothing we can do to deserve the grace of God because grace is God's unmerited or unearned favor. Grace is God giving to us what we don't deserve, what we can't work up, what we can't pay for, what we can't do enough for. It's just God's goodness poured out on us. And not only can grace not be earned, but grace has no favorites. Don't you love that? Grace is available to anyone who will call on the name of Jesus Christ, anyone who will say, I need that grace. Because if grace made distinctions, if it could be about who or what you've done, then it would be merited and it wouldn't be grace at all. But that's one of the great things about grace, that it's unmerited. The Bible tells us in Romans 3.23 that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That word sinned is the Greek word harmatia, and it means to miss the mark. You see, in Paul's day, there was a game of arrows where different people would shoot at a target and anything that didn't hit the bullseye was considered harmatia or miss the mark. It didn't matter how far from that bullseye you missed. It didn't matter if you got it in a circle right next to it or if you missed the board completely. You missed the mark, harmatia, and you were a sinner because you missed the mark. And the Bible tells us that all of us have missed the mark. There's a standard of perfection, a standard of righteousness that God will accept. And that standard can only be found in Jesus Christ. God gave us the law to show us how big, how huge that standard is, how none of us can meet that standard. He gave us the law as a schoolmaster, Paul says in Galatians, to show us that we needed a savior. We needed someone who could fulfill the law for us. It was to show us how desperately we would need Jesus Christ. Within all of us, there is that desire to hit or meet perfection, or at least to worship someone who is perfect. We tend to get expectations about people and think people are other than what they really are. I remember my dad telling me the story that years ago, he took my brothers and my sister to see a famous uh, childhood star. This man had a program that was just for kids and my brothers and my sister were so excited about seeing this person. They just thought he was absolutely perfect. 
And they went to see this. And my dad said he was absolutely so disgusted because this childhood hero was stone drunk, something that my siblings were too young to understand or comprehend. But there was this childhood hero stumbling around on stage and almost falling off. You see, stars, people have images, but they're not perfect. But we often are compelled to worship people who are musicians or who pretend uh, to be something that they're not playing roles or acting out parts. We place people on pedestals and we expect perfection, perfection in their attitudes and in their behaviors. And we're always so disappointed when we find out that they're not perfect. I remember one child that was always getting upset with me they would always tell me, mom, that's not what you were supposed to say. And it seemed no matter how hard I tried, I was always saying the wrong thing. And not only that, I became very self-conscious of what I was supposed to say, knowing I was probably going to get it wrong and say the wrong thing, which made me even more awkward. And I remember that he said, you are, you're being so awkward. And I said, you know what, honey, you're going to have to give me a script and I can read the script and then I'll get this right. Because other than that, I'm just me and I'm going to get it wrong because I'm just not perfect. But then I said to them, you should be happy that I'm not perfect because I don't expect perfection of myself. Therefore, I don't expect perfection of you. Isn't it great when somebody doesn't expect perfection of us? You know, often somebody will come over to visit and I'm apologizing for my house. You know, I'm, I'm sorry I didn't get a chance to vacuum or I didn't get a chance to dust or, I, you know, I didn't pick up the toys. And when they say, oh my goodness, you should see my house. It's such a mess. You're like, oh good, I can relax with this person. We can actually be friends because they're not perfect. It's so hard to be friends with somebody who thinks they're absolutely perfect. And so they expect these standards that they hold of everybody else. And those standards are absolutely impossible. The Bible tells us that there is only one person who is good, and that's God. That is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus was the only person who was able to keep the law absolutely perfectly, the way God intended the law to be kept. And guess what? The rule keepers... The Pharisees, the legalists, they hated him. They didn't like the way he kept the law. In other words, those perfectionists didn't like the perfect keeping of the law. Isn't that so like perfectionists? Perfectionists never like other perfectionists. It's so the truth. But Jesus was the only one who was able to keep the law absolutely perfect. No other man in history has been able to keep the law and resist Satan. Even Paul and Barnabas, these great saints, these great missionaries, these great biblical heroes were not perfect. They, like us, were subject to the same temptations and passions and imperfections that often mar our best efforts. There are some believers who think that they can reach perfection. They are the most oppressive people you will ever, ever meet. They make you feel so inferior. Oh, so you do it that way. <laughs> when I was young, I used to do it that way. Or you'll grow. They have these very condescending things that they say to the rest of us to make us feel inferior. 
These people also draw away disciples after themselves because they're always creating a dependency on themselves. You must have their permission or their acceptance. You must run everything by them to make sure it's okay. And you find yourself unable to trust yourself or trust the Spirit of God speaking to you. I once had a woman say to me, Cheryl, I hear the Lord. So you need to do whatever I say and come under my authority because I hear the Lord. And I said to this well-intended woman, I also hear the Lord. I read my Bible and the Holy Spirit speaks to me and has been speaking to me since I was a child. And I listen to him. Perhaps this is a test from the Lord to make sure that I will listen to him and not to you. There's an interesting story told in 1 Kings chapter 13. And it's about a man, a young prophet, who goes to Israel and denounces King Jeroboam and the golden calf that he's made. And King Jeroboam says to this young prophet, please stay with me, eat my food, and I want to talk more to you. And the young prophet says, no, I've been told by God, if even an angel to tell me to stay, I am not to stay, but I'm to go back exactly where I came from. Well, there was an old prophet in that town, and he had heard about this young prophet. And so he saddled his donkey and he went out to meet the young prophet as the young prophet was on his way back to Judah. And he said to the young prophet, come and stay at my house. And the young prophet said to the old prophet, I can't. I have heard from the Lord and he told me that even if an angel should try to talk me into staying here, I'm not to stay. I'm to go back to Judah. But the old prophet said to the young prophet, oh, but an angel of the Lord came and spoke to me and told me you're supposed to come back with me. Well, to this young prophet's credit, perhaps it was the fact that the old prophet was an old prophet. In other words, he was a man who was known for hearing the voice of the Lord, a man who had a reputation for hearing the voice of the Lord, one who was stronger in the faith, had heard the Lord's voice more or for a longer time. So the young prophet yielded to the older prophet, went to the older prophet's home, ate with the older prophet, and as they were sitting, eating together, all of a sudden the older prophet looked at the young prophet and said, you should have obeyed the Lord and not me. And now you're going to die on your way home for disobeying the Lord. And that's exactly what happened to the young prophet. He was killed by a lion. The reason I tell you that story is not to scare you, even though it's kind of a scary story, but to show the importance of going directly to the Lord, of listening to his voice. Jesus wants to speak to you directly. Legalism wants to get in the way and say, no, listen to a man, listen to a woman. Let them tell you what the Lord is saying. But God said that the new covenant, everyone would hear his voice from the least to the greatest. And God wants to speak directly to you and put on your heart what he is saying. Often I'm asked to counsel people. People will say to me, Cheryl, what should I do? And they'll tell me the whole scenario of what they're going through. You know what I realized? The best thing to say is, what is God telling you to do? What promises have you received? What is the spirit putting on your heart? You know why I say that? Because I have no idea what they're supposed to do. But I know that God wants to speak to them. 
And I know that Jesus has said in his word that his sheep hear his voice in John chapter 10. And we as the sheep of Jesus Christ need to know his voice. See, legalists want us to know the voice, their voice, but they don't, they want to tell us that we cannot trust the voice of Jesus Christ, that that might not really be the voice of Jesus, that we have to run it by them to see if that really was the Lord speaking to us. These legalists will create insecurities in us. They will make you feel disqualified and they will tell you exactly what you have to do to be qualified. They will tell you the qualifications of salvation, the qualifications to be forgiven, the qualifications to forgive others. They're always going to give you rules and regulations and formulas. They'll make you question whether you're really the elect, whether you're really chosen by Jesus. They will want you to question whether Jesus really loves you or you just snuck in but he really doesn't love you. You have to do this, or you have to be like them, or you have to sit with them, or be their friend, or be their disciple for Jesus to love you. They will feel like you're disqualified because you neglected to do something, or forgot something, or wore the wrong shoes. That actually happened to me. I had a woman that tried to disqualify me for wearing naturalizer shoes. Can you believe that? They'll try to disqualify you from, because you sinned or because your background has some stain. But that's not our Jesus. We serve the God that forgives and the God, according to Colossians chapter 1, who has qualified us by his dear son. Legalists will mislead people to trust in the wrong things. Instead of trusting in the work of Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross for us, they want you to trust in the law in rules and regulations or formulas, methodologies, how you do something or traditions, the way things have always been done. That's what they want you to trust in rather than in Jesus Christ and his atoning death on the cross. They're always interested in how something is done, not what is done, but how it's done. They emphasize styles, the way something is done. In other words, what translation of the Bible are you listening to? What type of instrument accompanies the music you sing to? We had a woman in our church in England that felt that the guitar was of the devil and she disqualified any praise music that had a guitar. I've known people that disqualify any praise music that has drums. And yet David said, make a joyful noise to the Lord and he talked about the loud clanging cymbals. You see, anything that emphasizes styles or typologies rather than the grace of God and simple faith in Jesus Christ and what Jesus has done has got it wrong. There are those who want to qualify you by what type of translation of the Bible. If you do the New Living Translation or you do the ESV English Standard Version, or you do this CHSB or some other version, you're not truly getting the Word of God. It's got to be the old King James. In other words, if you don't speak Shakespeare, then you're unqualified or disqualified. Interestingly enough, it was those leaders in the church that felt that anybody who translated the Bible into English, those who translated the Bible into the King James Version, Tyndall and Wycliffe, 
they felt that they were disqualified and anyone who had those translations of the Bible were disqualified because the Bible had been translated from the Hebrew and the Greek and therefore was invalid. It seems like we are repeating the mistakes of history. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the style. The importance about the Word of God is to get understanding, to know what the Bible is saying. Personally, I love the New King James. I love the Old King James for its beauty and its Shakespeare language. And I also love the New Living Translation for its clarity. And I, I just love the Bible. Isn't that the way we should be? There was a song years ago that was sung by a group called Phoenix Sunshine. And it says, paperback Bible, I'm so happy that you are mine. Paperback Bible, I'm going to read you all the time. For the words are the same and it's got the same name and I'm going to read it any old way. I love that. It's about the Bible. But again, legalists will emphasize style over substance. They'll emphasize methodologies. Again, how you do things. Beware people that speak with superlatives when people say their way of doing things is the only way or the best way. You see, our God works individually with each of us. We're told that the Holy Spirit works individually with each of us, giving us different gifts according to what he sees in our personalities or what he knows will go on in our lives. The law also creates stratifications or levels of holiness. In other words, it puts those who do what they do in a certain way more holy than others. It creates elitism. The Pharisees, who were the absolute legalists in Jesus' time, felt superior to everybody else. In fact, when they would walk through the marketplace, they would wrap their garments so tightly around themselves so it wouldn't touch anybody else because they felt so much holier than everybody else. The law also creates frustration, this legalism, because the law can only tell you what you need to do. It can only tell you what is wrong, but it can't help you to do what is right. Paul wrote in Romans seven fifteen, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I want to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. That is where the law will lead you, to absolute frustration. But law also creates friction. There will always be contentions between those under grace and those under the law. The law will cause you to judge one another rather than helping one another and building one another up. The law causes estrangement. In Galatians 5, 4, Paul says, you who seek to be under the law, you're estranged from Christ. It makes you independent of Jesus. You no longer need Jesus because you're doing all the right things. So Jesus has to accept you. And you're not being accepted because of Jesus' grace or what he's done on the cross, because of, but instead because of what you're doing. You think you're earning it and doing it by works and rituals and regulations rather than by pure dependency on the grace of Jesus Christ. Again, legalism will give you a loss of joy because you'll always be worried about making the grade. It will give you a loss of authenticity because it creates performance. You're no longer real. You're, you're trying to be what you really aren't because what you really are is imperfect. Imperfect. 
And when you're trying to be perfect, you're not true to yourself. It's a loss of spiritual strength because you're no longer acting under the power of the Holy Spirit, but you're acting on what you can do, your susceptible fleshly nature for Jesus. And finally, legalism will make us so self-focused because my eyes, they turn on me. What am I doing for God rather than what God has done and is doing for me? What I need to do to change and how I can change myself for God rather than letting God and Jesus Christ come into me and change me. See, when I'm focused on what I need to do to change, I don't really change. But when God comes into me, the change is sometimes imperceptible. All of a sudden, I realize I'm not that same person. God has changed me and I become a walking miracle. Rather than becoming more yielded to God, legalism makes it all about me and less about Jesus. It was grace that was at stake at the church in Antioch of Syria. Legalism was about to come in and destroy the church. It was threatening that body there. Certain men were told in Acts chapter 15 had come down from Jerusalem. They had feigned to have the authority of the church there. Isn't that interesting? I find those who are legalists always feign authority that they don't have. They want to be on boards and have titles. That's where they get their authority, by heritage, rather than by the authority of grace. And so these men were feigning authority from Jerusalem that they didn't have. And they came down and they told the Gentile believers that they weren't really saved because they weren't circumcised. They told these precious believers that they had to go under the law. Now, circumcision was part of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Circumcision did not make Abraham righteous before God. It was a sign that God had made Abraham righteous by faith. And circumcision came after faith, not before faith. But these men were saying circumcision must come before faith. This was more of an important issue than you could possibly realize. In fact, it was so important that Paul and Barnabas had a huge contention with these men that came down from Jerusalem. This disagreement was large. It was not passive. It was not simply a discussion. Paul and Barnabas were angry. They took these men to task. Now, it's interesting to note, this is Paul that would say to the Romans, as much as lies in you, live peaceably with all men. He would say to Timothy, the servant of God must not quarrel. And yet he's ready to fight for grace in the church. He's willing to fight against legalism. The church in Antioch of Syria was healthy and thriving. As we learned in chapter 13 of Acts, this was a church that was full of diversity, all types of believers. There were different cultures, both the Jews and Gentiles. There were different nationalities. There was Simeon, a man with roots from Africa. There was Lucius from Cyrene. There was Menaean, a man who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. 
This is a church where the Holy Spirit was active. He was speaking. He was designating. He was manifesting himself in gifts to the believers there. We're told that there were teachers and prophets. It was a thriving church. It was growing in numbers. It was growing in the word of God. And it was growing in giving to others. It was sending support back to the church of Jerusalem. It was also a sending church. It was launching out missionaries like Paul and Barnabas. It was commending these men to the grace of God, praying and fasting for these men. It was supporting ministries in other regions of the world. This church was an example to the community that it was in and to the world at large. We're told that Syria, this church in Antioch of Syria, was the third most influential city in Paul's time. The first city, of course, was Rome in Italy. The second city was Alexandria in Egypt. And the third city of influence was Syria in Antioch. And it was here in Syria of Antioch that the believers were first called Christians or Christ-like. That was the example these believers were setting in this huge metropolis. They were acting like Jesus. And yet it is this thriving church that Satan wants to infiltrate. It's this thriving church that Satan would like to destroy. He's not trying to destroy it from the outside. It's not about the persecution coming from the outside. It's from within. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus told the parable of the field that was growing the healthy wheat. And at night, an enemy came and sowed tares or weeds among the healthy wheat. And when the harvesters woke up in the morning, they went to the Lord of the harvest and they said, there's tares among the wheat. And the Lord of the harvest said, an enemy has done this. Jesus explained this parable saying that Satan was the one who came and would sow tares among the wheat. And that's what we see here, that these legalists come in and they come in as brethren. They come in as, oh, we'll make you more acceptable to the Lord. Don't you want to be your best for Jesus? That's the hook of legalism. Something more, something better that you can do for Jesus, something greater than anybody else has done. And that's how they grab these precious believers. Well, this became such a contention that the church in Antioch said, we're going to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem. No doubt they were going for two reasons. The first was to check on the credentials of these certain men who said they had come from Jerusalem. Secondly, to find out what really was the opinion of the church in Jerusalem. Now, in those days, believers looked to the church in Jerusalem as the significant church, the model church, the church where sound doctrine would emanate from. Paul and Barnabas were absolutely the right men to send to Jerusalem. One, because they were leaders in the church. They were men who had risked their lives for the gospel. These were men who were intrepid when it came to the gospel of grace. These were men who were undeterred by riots and stonings and persecution. They kept going because they believed wholeheartedly 
in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They put their life on the line for what they believed. Unlike these men that came down from Jerusalem that sought to save their life, that sought to exalt their lives, Paul and Barnabas were willing to lose their lives for the gospel. They were men who set an example by obeying the Holy Spirit, by going where the Holy Spirit had sent them. These were men who had great success among the Gentiles with the gospel. These other men never took the gospel to the Gentiles. They only preyed on other believers, but they weren't going out, tearing up the soil, doing for the Lord, but they just wanted to work with those who were saved, playing it safe. But Paul and Barnabas had gone out to the Gentiles and proclaimed the gospel firsthand. Paul and Barnabas knew the law better than most men. Paul, we're told, was a Pharisee and by his own admission, a son of the Pharisee, a son of Pharisee. He had grown up under Gamaliel, a famous teacher of the law in Jerusalem. Then there was Barnabas. He was a Levite, someone who knew the Levitical law, someone who studied the Levitical law. Not only that, but these men, Paul and Barnabas, were also teachers in the church in Antioch. They knew the scriptures. They knew their Bible. So they're sent to Jerusalem. And on the way, they stop at different fellowships and they describe the conversion of other Gentiles. Don't you just love that? They stop and they tell the testimonies. They're telling these other churches, this is what God is doing. This is how he's transforming lives. They have names that they're associating with the gospel. I was reading Romans chapter 15 today, and I love how Paul personally knows so many believers in that Roman church, and he's able to say something specific about those believers. Phoebe, a woman who has helped the saints and who has helped Paul himself, a deaconess or leader, Aquila and Priscilla, people who have church in their home, people who have risked their lives for Paul's sake. He knows something about these believers in Rome. So Paul and Barnabas, they're not just talking about multitudes of people. They're giving names and testimonies, the stories of these believers. And we're told that the fruit of what they're saying and what God has done is absolute joy in the Lord. You see, that's what happens where grace is, there is absolute joy because we're seeing grace transform people, grace change people. And you're realizing this is something only God can do. This is God's story. This is how God alone worked. Now in Jerusalem, they set up a council. In other words, they're going to hold court and find out what the opinion of the church should be. What are they going to say? What is going to be the principle concerning the Gentile believers? And so James, who presides over the church, presides over this meeting. Now, this is James, the brother of Jesus, or we should say the half-brother of Jesus. He was the son of Joseph, a descendant of David, and the son of Mary, also a descendant of David. He's part of that wondrous lineage of David 
the lineage of the Messiah. And here is James, once a doubter about his brother, and now he is in charge of the church. He's also the James that wrote the epistle of James. There are believers in this fellowship who are also Pharisees. You see, again, we're not disqualifying these Pharisees, even though they would disqualify the Gentile believers. Legalists would disqualify other believers. But we as believers in the gospel of grace do not disqualify anyone. We let God alone do the qualifying and the disqualifying. We don't judge. We leave all judgment to the Lord and we just serve the Lord. These Judaizers, as they're also referred to in Jerusalem, insisted that every Gentile needed to be circumcised and keep the law. On the other side of the issue were Peter, Paul, and Barnabas. And the apostle and elders in Jerusalem were split right down the middle. So first, Peter addressed the council. Peter, a disciple of Jesus. Peter, the one God had used first to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And we find his story in Acts chapter 10 when he took the gospel to Cornelius. Peter has a threefold argument on why the Gentiles should not be circumcised and go under the law. His first point is his personal experience with the Gentiles. His testimony is that when he was in the house of Cornelius, God showed no distinction between the Gentiles and the Jews, but he baptized these Gentiles in the same Holy Spirit that Peter had received with other Jews on the day of Pentecost, that the results were the same thing. When Cornelius and his Gentile household believed the gospel that Peter presented, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues and proclaim the glory of God, exactly what had happened to Peter and the other Jews on the day of Pentecost. Peter then says, God knows the heart. And he verified the faith of these believers by the Holy Spirit. And he purified their hearts by faith. God made them righteous by faith. God pronounced them righteous or fully accepted by their faith because they believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter's second point is the inability of the law to save others. Peter points to the fact that the law has been a yoke on the neck of Jews, that it has been burdensome, hard to remember. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, and Matthew chapter 12, verse 7, the Pharisees, seeing the disciples of Jesus, seeing their liberties, complained to Jesus. And Jesus said to these Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus was quoting from the prophecy of Hosea. And what he was pointing out that God is saying that he desires to show mercy. His way is grace in mercy. He doesn't want rituals. He doesn't want laws and regulations. He wants to pour out his mercy. 
Peter also points out that the forefathers were unable to keep the law. This is why Israel kept going into exile, captivity, and bondage. It was because of their inability to keep the law. We have the story of Ezra and in Nehemiah, these exiles that had returned from captivity from Babylon, and they were so dedicated to keeping the law. That's what they wanted to do more than anything else. And yet we find them within just a few months of returning from captivity, intermarrying and sinning. So Peter is saying, how could we require them to keep what we were unable to keep? Then finally, Peter's last point is that he and the apostles believed that they were saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Why should the Gentiles be saved any other way than the same way that Peter was saved? Next in this court, you have Paul and Barnabas sharing, and they shared the testimony of what God had done among the Gentiles. Remember, it was the believing Gentiles that had stirred up the jealousy of the Jews who refused to believe. It was the Gentiles that begged to hear the gospel preached to them in Acts 13, 42. God worked wonders among these Gentiles and drew the hearts to his son and opened their eyes to see and their ears to hear. Signs and wonders were done among these Gentile believers. It was these Gentile believers that showed the fruit, the true fruit of repentance, that showed the virtue of transformation. Finally, you have James, the brother of Jesus, again, the descendant of David on both sides. And he takes in the testimony of Peter and says, Simon has declared to us how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. Then James does something so important. He quotes the scripture. Now, the significance of the scripture he quotes in Amos 9, verses 11 and 12 is to show that God is calling the Gentiles Gentiles. You see, those Pharisees were teaching that these Gentile believers had to proselytize and become Jews, and then they could accept Jesus by faith. But first they had to become Jews. If that was the case, then the scripture would only address Jews. But what you see in verse 16, as James quotes God's word to the prophet Amos, it says, after this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. In other words, Gentiles retain their identity as Gentiles, where these Judaizers were saying that the Gentiles had to become Jews before they were saved. But God says these Gentiles will be called by my name. In other words, they'll come through faith. Then James says in verse 18, known to God from eternity are all his works. In other words, God knew that he was going to do things this way. And so he put it in the scriptures. As it says in Romans 15, 4, that God wrote these things in the scriptures long ago to teach us. The scripture is always going to be our ultimate authority for all things, for every practice in the church, for everything we believe, for 
for how to go forward. It's going to be the scriptures. So James concludes that God never intended to change the identity of those he planned on saving. So he put it in the scriptures. James widely, wisely concludes, Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but they, we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. Things that the Gentiles would have heard in the synagogues all over the known world at that time. So they write a letter to be sent to the Gentile churches. This letter is from the apostles, the elders, and the whole church in Jerusalem. Not just from certain men, but here is the whole council. And the letter begins with the authority of those writing it. Again, apostle, elders, brethren. It is addressed to brethren who are of the Gentiles, those in Antioch, those in Syria, those in Cilicia. And it deals with the issue that some went out from Jerusalem and they troubled the church. This word is terrasso. It means that they struck with fear and dread, disquieted, caused commotion, destroyed peace, rendered anxiety and distress. This is what legalism brought. It was saying, you're not good enough. You need something more. Exactly the lie that Satan brought to Eve in the garden. You need something more than what God has already given you. It's a lie. And what it does is it causes terrasso. It causes chaos and upheaval. And we're told that our God is not the God of confusion, but of peace. Then it says, unsettled your souls. That word unsettled is the Greek word anaskizo. And it means to move your security. The actual rendering of this word means to move furniture. In other words, it took these believers' trust off of what Jesus had done, off of the cross of Jesus and all that Jesus had accomplished. And it put their security, moved their furniture onto themselves, what they were doing or what they needed to do for God, to rituals, to outward acts, rather than to trusting faith in Jesus. The letter goes on to say that these men were not commissioned or sent by those in Jerusalem. They gave no such commandment. And then it shows the unity of the decision in Jerusalem. It seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men. Those men were Silas and Judah, Judas, men who were prophets, to report to them or to reiterate exactly what this letter meant and said. And they sent these men with Barnabas and Paul, who in the letter were said to be well beloved, endeared, and proven because they had risked their life for the gospel of grace. Men who had put their lives on the line for the gospel. And then the conclusion of the matter to all the churches was, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. Isn't that the ultimate? What does the Lord want? What is good? What is right before the Holy Spirit? And this is what's good to the Holy Spirit, to not lay upon anyone a greater burden 
than what is necessary. Don't make the gospel hard. Don't make it burdensome. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Whenever Christianity becomes burdensome or like a yoke, you have to look back and say, you know, what legalism am I picking up? Where am I trying to lift for Jesus rather than letting Jesus lift for me or trusting in what Jesus has already lifted? Not to add any burdens. And so they're giving simple dictates. One, don't eat anything sacrificed to idols. In other words, don't move back to idolatry in any way. Don't eat things with blood because the life is in the blood. Don't eat things that are strangled. These are, these are doable. These are easy. And then finally, abstain from sexual immorality. Do these things and you will be set apart. You'll be a vessel that is ready for the grace of God to fill and to use. Paul said where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty for all. Going back to the Garden of Eden, Eve and Adam had perfect liberty in the garden. There was only one prohibition, but there were so many get-tos, so many freedoms. They could freely partake of any tree in the garden, all of the trees, but one. And this is what this letter is stating. These are so little, these prohibitions, these are so doable, and the rest is all freedom. Keeping it simple allows for two divine essentials. When we keep it simple, this is what happens. One, we allow for diversity. We allow for different forms of expression to the Lord. We allow for people to use different gifts for different tastes, for different cultures. Remember in the Garden of Eden, there were all sorts of different fruit trees, peach trees and apricot trees and cherry trees and all sorts of trees. And they could eat freely of all they wanted, banana and mango, all sorts of trees. So in the body of Christ, there are all sorts of gifts and diversity of gifts. It's so beautiful. And God gives us different gifts. And we use those gifts and express those gifts in different ways. We're all singing the same song, but some of us are singing it with a faster beat, some with a slower beat, some with an R&B beat. Some of us are singing it with high voices and others altos and basses and second sopranos. But all of it goes together to bring a beautiful song. Secondly, not only does it allow for diversity, but allows for a dependency, a dependency on Jesus Christ alone, not on men, but on God, on God's word, so that we are always doing and checking ourselves by the scripture and by the Lord himself that we've got this constant communion with the Lord. Like, Lord, what do you want? What do you, what pleases you? What is good in your sight? That's how we're to live with this constant communication through prayer where we are seeking and hearing the voice of the Lord. And we have that dependency when we are walking in the freedoms of the Lord. You know, as you look at the word of God, it gives us principles 
you know, how to raise our children, these broad principles, but it doesn't give us specifics. Why? Because we are to seek the specifics from communication, constant communication from the Lord Jesus every day. When the father of Samson was told he was going to have a son, he sought out the angel that told his wife about the baby, saying, show us how we're to raise the son. Give us the specifics. And that's what we're to do. We're to seek the Lord for the specifics. The result of this decision was grace. It was read in Antioch in Syria in this church. And we're told that there was joy and encouragement. This will always be the result of grace. The result of legalism and the law will always be frustration and burdens. But the result of grace will always be joy and encouragement. We're told that Judas and Silas stayed a longer, that they prophesied and exhorted or encouraged and built up and warned the believers there and strengthened them with many words. Judas returned to Jerusalem with the church in Antioch's greetings and thanksgiving. But Silas decided to stay. Paul and Barnabas, for a time, remained in this church teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, establishing these believers again in the grace of God. But then one day we're told that Barnabas felt led to return to strengthen the Gentile churches that the Lord had used Paul and himself to establish. No doubt he wanted to share with these churches the decision of the council in Jerusalem because already we're told that Judaizers, these men from Jerusalem having gone to Antioch, they were trying to infiltrate the other churches. This is exactly the problem that you have in Galatia. And Paul wrote the book of Galatians because these Judaizers had gone to Galatia and started troubling the believers there. So Barnabas says, Paul, let's go back to these churches and let's strengthen them. Paul thinks it's a great idea. They're going to go back and they're going to strengthen these churches. And Barnabas says, and let's take John Mark, who went with us before. <gasps> well, this upset Paul so much. Why did it upset Paul? Well, it could be because Paul felt that Mark hadn't put in his dues. Mark had left that first missionary journey after Pamphylia. He hadn't gone on. He hadn't risked his life. When the going got tough, he went back to Jerusalem. That could be the case, or it could be something else. But whatever Paul's feelings were, we know this, that a contention arose between Barnabas and Paul. These men were not perfect. I don't know about you, but I get excited about this contention. Maybe it's naughty of me, but I'm so excited that they weren't perfect, and yet they were so dynamically used by God. And this is not the end of them being used by God, this contention. But in fact, God's going to use this contention to send out two missionary teams. Barnabas is going to take Mark and he's going to sell to Cyprus and strengthen the churches there. Paul is going to take Silas, this prophet, this encourager, and he's going to go to the other churches and strengthen the churches there. And we're told that these men were commended to the grace of God. Again, they're not going to go out in the law. They're not going to go out because they're perfect. But they're going to go out with the gospel of grace. The gospel that is for imperfect people. Those who can't do the law. Those who can't get it right. 
not performance, but real people with real needs, receiving and dispensing the grace of God. That's the gospel. Wherever there is spiritual health, Satan will try to introduce legalism. Watch out as believers for any additions to faith in Jesus Christ. Watch out for anything that makes it about what you do or how you do what you do. Anything that brings in rituals or rules, regulations, elitism, anything that brings in formulas, anything that says this is the way, anything that says this is the posture, this is the book you have to read. In fact, if you as a believer feel a loss of joy or distance between you and Jesus, realize that legalism might be at the core of it. Forget the rituals. Forget the way you're doing things and get back to just simply Jesus and the grace of God. Get back to what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. In Matthew chapter 15, and I'm going to end with this. Jesus comes out to the disciples walking on the water and Peter says to Jesus, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come out and come to you walking on the water. And Jesus says, yes, come. And we're told Peter gets out of the boat and he's walking on water. But all of a sudden, Peter begins to make it about him. He feels the wind and he sees the waves and he realizes everything that's against him and he begins to sink. And Jesus reaches out to Peter and he grabs him and he pulls him up and he says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Oh, Peter, Get your eyes back on Jesus. You see our relationship, our grace. Everything has always got to be about keeping our eyes on Jesus. What Jesus has done, who Jesus is, not about what we do for him, but what he has done for us and what he will continue to do for us by grace. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves, but our sufficiency is in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us to turn away from any legalism, Lord. Let us recognize this intrepid intruder for what he is, Lord. And let us, let us turn away from him. Let us refuse his snares, God. And let us turn fully to the grace of God, Lord. Allow us to rest ourselves in the grace that comes only from what you have done on the cross. Lord, help us to trust in your grace and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.